This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Ask any teacher and they'll tell you a principal can make or break a school. So why don't we talk more about how big a deal school leadership is? We try to change that. Plus, some say Fortnite the video game should be banned. Bad idea, say our teachers. Instead, schools need to learn how to take advantage of kids' gaming passion. And the phrase, it's all about the kids. Teachers hear it all the time, and they say, stop saying it. Those topics, plus kids these days, on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Kirsten Brown, what do you do in education? I am a principal at a middle and high school. Welcome. Luann Fox, welcome back to you as well. What do you teach? I teach high school English. And Greg Brenner, the third teacher at the table today, what do you teach? Yep. High school social studies. We have three high school slash middle school educators here. Kirsten, Luann, and Greg are all educators in the Kansas City area. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet, at nowronganswerspodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and gives you a chance also to review some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at nowronganswerspodcast.com. Principals can make or break a school. They set a tone and help establish and maintain a building's culture for better or worse. In my own personal experience, just for say, I I remember having the single best year of my teaching career in terms of both student achievement and job satisfaction, and the single worst year of my teaching career in back-to-back years at the same school with the same kids. What changed? The principal. A new study underscores just how important a good, and more to the point, a well-trained, prepared principal can be for a school. The Rand Corporation studied six different school districts from 2011 to 2016 that implemented comprehensive principal pipeline programs that focused on selecting, training, and supporting new principals. And the study found that the students in the schools that had principals from these pipeline programs in general performed better on math and reading than students in comparison schools without the program and that the principals themselves stayed in their jobs longer than principals from comparison schools. The Rand Corporation concludes that investing in effective principals is one of the most feasible, affordable, and effective ways to improve schools. Well, we actually do have a principal at the table today. That's why, in part, I wanted to do this topic. We also have two teachers who have been in the classroom and worked with principals. So just in general, for the three of you, what are your experiences, good or bad, with the principals you've had? I've had some, it it has varied. Um, I have had principals who made it very apparent that they were not invested in um, the school and the success of the school, um, and it was more of a a job. Um, So as a result, um, the principal would stay and 
her office the majority of the time, and there was no clear vision or mission that was ever conveyed to the staff and and not a lot of direction in terms of what the expectations were. And as a result, it was quite chaotic. I've been at a school at the opposite where there was clear vision and clear mission and like a lot of oversight. Um, and as a result, the school got better results. Um, so I definitely agree with this, you know, the findings of this, that principals do have a huge impact of overall successes. I want to get back more to that experience as well, and also how that's informed you now that you are a principal, but for Luann and Greg, you're in the classroom. What are your experiences with principals and how do they affect your job? Uh, I've been lucky enough that in my 15 years of teaching now, I've only had three different principals, which which seems um, nowadays seems almost like an outlier. Uh, one of those principals was, was our principal for 12 of those years. So just the continuity uh, was just this, it kept everything stable and and it's been a great experience with with those principles um, so far so knock on wood what is it about um, a principle that sets the tone for a building um, I, both Kirsten and and Greg you're talking about ideas of continuity and just the overall feel of a building can be affected by who's at the top why is that the case um, they're the adult in the room, you know, it, 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 well, in, in, in a sense, like they're, they're the ones, it, it's like how we uh, approach our classroom in a way. We set the tone and, and um, what we think is important in the classroom, we impart to our students. Um, it's almost the same way as, as being a parent, too, that, that um, the way we react or act with our, with our students and with our kids, um, that sets the tone and that sets the expectation. Principal does the same thing. Uh, uh, Luann, it seems like you have, may have had a little catch with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I hopefully that we're we're all really professional and that we we, you know, we're all we're all that. But I, I was just thinking how adults really not adults prin- principals really need to have vision. I mean, I think more than anything, if they don't have a clear vision, like what does this school look like and what is the impact that we want to make and how do we want to grow our kids, um, that that. I mean, that that really matters. So having vision and then also I think that needs to be paired with understanding who they are as leaders so that they know that um, they don't have to have all the best ideas in the room, that they know how to get um, a bunch of other people together and pull the best out of them. And even if it's um, uncomfortable conversations or, you know, nasty and messy kind of work that it's like, you know, all on the floor, you know, it's it's all in the room kind of thing. It's not a personal situation. They understand that they've got good leaders, or that hopefully they've hired them, so that they will will get some of the best ideas out of them. And then it's just that sort of art of learning how to how to manage that, and how do the best ideas rise to the top. And and also principals should have some idea about knowing about efficacy. Just because, say, you've got teacher leaders that are like, wow, here's the new thing in education. Let's all try this, that you have the principal on the back end being like, well, how, how you know, how efficacious is this and being able to, to measure that? You mentioned vision. That's the second time that word has come up. Kirsten, you were the first one to mention it. You, you said that you did have a principal um, who did at one point have a very clear vision for the school you were working at, and that translated into um, academic achievement and a better environment at the school. What, If you remember, what was the vision or, or why was it? What did that principal do that made that vision so clear? Sure. So the vision was around creating college graduates, and that was it was really focused. And every decision that was made was focused around that decision. So even when and all, I think they hired in a really strategic way to ensure that everyone who was hired was 
wanting was like was very transparent to them what they were signing up for um, in terms of making that vision a reality. And whenever rationale was given for shifts within um, instructional practices or cultural practices, um, it was always tied back to the vision, which everyone was deeply invested in, which allowed us to all be on the same page and all do what it took to ensure that that vision became an, a so reality. So everything... I mean, mm-hmm. everything that you did so, yeah. somehow in some way was tied back to this idea of Absolutely. creating college graduates. Mm-hmm. Um, the RAND Corporation study that's the basis for this conversation found that the effects on student achievement of an effective principal were uh, more statistically significant at elementary and middle school levels, less so at the high school level, though there was still a slight edge uh, for uh, principals from this pipeline program at the high school level. Still, it was more significant at lower grades. Also, the effects on student achievement were more pronounced in schools that were already low-performing. So you bring in a high-performing or high-functioning principal to a low-performing school, the effect apparently, based on this study, more profound. Um, Do you have, like... I don't want to say nightmare stories, but do you have, I mean, just bad experiences of of working for a principal or a leader who in some way or another created a a, a bad culture or a bad environment? And what was that like? Well, when I was at a particular school, uh, the principal was first-year principal, um, and he had come from another district, and he'd done a system principal job for a while, but... um, and this was so many years ago. Anyway, a uh, uh, student, female student, uh, was a, a fairly tough teacher, but a female student went to the principal and complained that somehow I had been looking at her backside in a in a lascivious way, and uh, which was completely uh, accused you of this. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. but and never to my face. Just went to the principal and just was uh, the 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 girl was just vicious about it. So what the principal did was uh, react very strongly. And instead of telling me what we needed to have a meeting about, the principal's like, you need to have a meeting. It needs to be here. It needs to be at this time and get ready and like go. And I'm like, do I bring my grade book? I mean, it was long enough ago to have like the paper grade book. <laughs> and it's so all like, do I, what do, what do you need? And he's like, I just need you. And you just need to be here. And I was, you know what I mean? I didn't sleep that night. Mm. I don't think I ate that night. I was like a young teacher myself. And I'm like, what in the hell? And then when I finally find out that I'm going to get raked over the coals because um, of what this girl accused me of. And he didn't done due diligence. He was very reactionary. You know, he didn't didn't realize that, you know, she'd just gotten out of juvie that she was um, upset at having to do any schoolwork at all. The vice principal, who had been uh, working for much longer underneath him and who I'd had a relationship with, right? I She was my friend, and I would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe how, I, you know, he had to, he asked me these questions, and he's accusatory and all this. And she's like, yeah, he never, he needs to research this kind of stuff before he, you know, lays it out. And she spoke to him maybe about how to, do those kinds of situations a little bit better so that it doesn't make somebody who has to teach, right, and perform all day long, which is what I had to do. I mean, I had to, like, lump it, and it was it was excruciating. Well, that was the question that I was going to ask. Um, how important is it to have a principal who has um, been a teacher but have been a teacher for a, a relatively long time or, or has experience in the classroom? I mean, all principals obviously have to have some sort of teaching experience in order to get up to where at the administrative level. But I, I guess how, how important is it to have a, a teacher, uh, a principal with some pretty broad or extensive uh, teaching experiences? 
Yeah, I've, the the joke that I've had um, at at school is, and, and this mainly goes toward people who lead PD, but also it could go towards admin. That there seems to be an inverse relationship between like effectiveness of whoever's leading PD or admin and their time away from the classroom. Like the longer the time away from the classroom is, the worse they are because they just forget, you know. And that's just part of human nature. Um, luckily enough, I th- I also think, at least personally for me, that if um, the principal taught your subject area, the more in common you have, the better off you're going to be. And, and, and that's certainly been the case with me where um, most of my principals have been uh, social studies teachers or language arts teachers, which is really close to, to social studies. So in that way, it's like I know they have my back because they taught my subject before. I think it also has to do with um, how that principal was as a teacher, because as you know, there are um, different levels of teachers. Some Some teachers work harder and and get more out of their kids than some teachers. So what kind of a teacher was that actual principal? And did that teacher become the principal because he's got a family or she's got a family to support and more money is, is really the driver as opposed to, say, wanting to influence change at a bigger level? Yeah, Kirsten, you are a principal. You should say you're a relatively young principal, so you have not been out of the classroom that long, mm-hmm. to Greg's point. Um, how does your experience, both good or bad, as a teacher with the principles you've had inform your work, and also even to Luann's point, um, how did it uh, affect your decision to become a principal? Yeah, so I've learned, so I've, I've had, I think, four different principles, and that's given me the ability to learn, okay, these are really good practices that I know are effective that I want to take into my practice as a principal. And it's also allowed me to recognize the practices that are completely toxic and detrimental to the success of the school and to student culture and staff culture. And so that, I think having varied experiences under the leadership of different principals has allowed me to to have that lens going into my own leadership role. Um, And what made me want to be a principal is uh, I had a really effective classroom and got really strong results for students. And I I loved it so much, and I loved the impact that was created in the culture that we were able to create, and I wanted to see that happen school-wide. And so that really propelled me to pursue an opportunity where I could create that culture and create that academic achievement, not within my own classroom, but across the entire school. You've already talked about vision, so, I mean, I'm assuming that's one of the main things that you think about that you need to have, but I wonder, on the flip side, are there practices or experiences you had as a teacher that when you became a principal, you said, I definitely do not want to do this. And Mm -hmm. I wonder, and I think you said something about like toxic practices. Mm -hmm. What are those? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think when you make it abundantly clear that you have a little interest in what's going on in classrooms, so you don't ask teachers about how things are going on in classrooms, you have no idea because you don't go into classrooms yourself. Um, When I think another, this is something that really used to frustrate me as a teacher, is when um, principals had no knowledge and as, about my context, my specific t- context in teaching sixth grade, for example, or maybe um, eighth grade literature, and they um, would create these like sweeping mandates that impacted me without eliciting my feedback or feedback from anyone who may be an expert. Um, so having the humility to like seek out that expertise before you make decisions that impact other, um, when that doesn't happen, it creates toxicity. Yeah. Kirsten, what's been the most difficult part um, about being a principal compared to being a teacher? Yeah. I feel like there are crises and emergencies every all the time, and you never know when it's going to hit, and you have to respond quickly and effectively. Um, and they're high stakes 
you know, everything's so high stakes. And so I think just the sheer responsibility of having to um, navigate that um, and just the unpredictability at times of it all, like, oh, I get a radio call. This situation has happened. I'm like, oh, my gosh, now I have to navigate this. But then, you know, I may get a parent complaint. Like, you know, there's just so many things that are thrown at you constantly, and that, that's that been hard to adjust to. And was, yeah, I mean, as a teacher, you could just confine yourself, yeah. your, your work, to your classroom. Yeah. And if something in the building was happening, you could just say... Well, that's yeah. someone else's problem for now. Yeah. yeah, and that brings me back to my point with the, the principal that I kind of mentioned earlier who was toxic. When those issues would arise, be like, okay, well, I hope hope it gets figured out instead of like really being on top of it and trying to ensure that um, whatever issue was coming about, um, you know, was tackled so that it didn't permeate throughout the entire school. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Britain's Prince Harry recently injected himself into an ongoing conversation many teachers and parents are having. On a visit to a London YMCA, Prince Harry took to task the uber-popular online video game Fortnite. In fact, he said the game should be banned. To quote Prince Harry, it's created to addict, an addiction to keep you in front of the computer as long as possible. It's so irresponsible, end quote. Indeed, Fortnite has been blamed for causing a lot of social chaos since it debuted nearly two years ago from crashing school Wi-Fi networks to contributing to divorces to causing professional athletes to lose focus. Fortnite is seen by many adults as a menace. But is this the whole story? An increasingly vocal camp of educators and parents are pushing back against the notion that Fortnite and other video games are, in fact, all bad. Jennifer Sr. is one of these. She's a parenting author and also an op-ed columnist in The New York Times, and she wrote recently that Prince Harry is wrong to say that Fortnite should be banned. In fact, she argues Fortnite in many ways is good. In an era when childhood is often too sheltered and overscheduled, Senior argues that Fortnite's social online structure is one of the few places, and she does call it a place, where kids can go to be rambunctious and rowdy together. Quoting Senior, gaming is their form of self-determination, a means to take control of their constricted, highly regimented lives. End quote. Oftentimes, the teachers are no wrong answers come in and talk about how much kids are playing or have been playing Fortnite or they're, they seem zoned out because they maybe spent all night playing a game or they're pl- trying to play it in class. Um, how would you feel about imposing some kind of limits on it? Are, are the negative effects of gaming so bad that such drastic steps are needed? One of, the, one of the things that um, one of my younger colleagues have talked about with uh, with gaming is that something about gaming culture, I'm not a gamer, so I'm, and, but something about gaming culture where it's not really regulated uh, that, that he sees as uh, a big problem. Like, for instance, uh, it could give rise to a lot of misogynistic impulses, racist impulses, because you've got like this community of people who are playing largely anonymous and there's nobody sort of policing that. And so if you've got some people who are, you know, bent a particular way, you're going to have, you know, the crowd, you know, go that way. So what he sees as a negative effect of gaming is going to deal more with like how we are 
doing do, doing mm. social stuff with with our kids. Yeah, I mean, like we're not games, helping them. And games are increasingly more social. I mean, they're, they are their own forms of social media. Right. Often, right. It's, which it's not just kind of like sitting in your dark living room playing a game by yourself. Like maybe the stereotype might have you envisioned. A lot of these games are you're interacting with people online in very deep and often uh, personal ways. We often like to focus on the perceived negative impacts of video games. We assume it leads to social isolation, oftentimes. We assume it makes kids less active. Um, But to go back to Jennifer Sr.'s point, I talked about her in the intro to this segment. Um, She says her own teenage son plays Fortnite a lot, but that that, in fact, um, facilitates real-world interaction. He's playing the game online with friends, and then, as she puts it, that makes him want to go hang out with those same friends in real life, that um, when he's socializing with them online, that is a form of modern-day socialization where kids are kind of testing the boundaries of social relationships and learning hierarchies that they have been learning for for decades prior to this, but maybe in real life. There is a social element to Fortnite and other modern video games that um, I think many adults are completely unaware of or not as aware of. Um, so we see kids staring into their screens, and that certainly scares us. But are your students, um, do you think your students are socializing when they play these games? And like in a way that you are still like trying to grasp and understand as adults? Yeah, definitely. I, I remember back in the fall when Fortnite was, was more popular, uh, it, it kind of shocked me. We had a really tough soccer game, and the soccer boys afterward, they were exhausted, they were beat. And what they were talking about on the way home was getting together at night and playing Fortnite. They're all going to go back to back, their... Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they're going back home and they're going to get together, you know, back together to, just to, to hang out on uh, playing Fortnite. And yeah, I think that socialization does happen. In a way, it almost seems like a virtual recess you know, where, where all of those things, negative and, you know, positive and negative things of all the things you could think about recess is happening online. Or, the, or could it be the equivalent of the adults going to like go have a drink, you yeah. know, after something yep. that they've experienced? Yeah. And what do you think... I mean, I guess in that moment when your your soccer players had just played a game in real life, we should say, and they've been interacting and playing, and they, I guess, and then you said that they lost and they were kind of disappointed and beat up after the game. Yeah, was there some kind of like social benefit to like them being able to say, yeah, I, when I get home, we're going to get on Fortnite together? Yeah, my knee my knee jerk reaction was, no, what are you talking about? Get something good to eat. We have a game coming up. <laughs> get some rest. And uh, but at the same time, I think they needed they needed that they needed to blow off steam. You know, where it does get negative is is where kids do play it um, until late hours, don't do homework. They show up the next day in in a in a fog, and um, you know. But but again, that 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 happened fifty years ago with comic books. Kids staying up way too late reading comic books. It, it's it's it is what it is. You know, there's always going to be something that distracts kids from do from not doing their homework and staying up too late. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time. Um Author Jordan Shapiro, he would be in the same camp as Jennifer Sr. He wrote a book called The New Childhood, um, which I actually said I have read. Um, I'm a parent of two young boys who are not old enough to play video games yet, but they're, they will inevitably be in a world where that will be possible. <laughs> um, and Shapiro um, advocates for a more, um, I guess what you might call an a more optimistic and nuanced view of video games and digital technology more broadly in the lives of modern children. He says, we, as adults, um, actually have a responsibility to teach kids how to use digital technology, including video games, um, effectively and ethically. This was not in his book, but in a Q&A with Variety magazine, he made the point that video games are not going away. They're here to stay. And if we ignore them or try to limit kids' access to them, we actually are doing them a disservice. As he puts it, and I'll quote from this Q&A, 
uh, quote, digital play is the best possible way to prepare kids for what's coming in the future. Shapiro says parents actually should play video games with their kids. He says he does with his two teenage boys. Uh, Teachers should incorporate more video games into their class. Um, And I'll ask you more about that in just a second. But I guess are there... What do you think about that view, that if you are actually um, trying to limit their use of video games or just ignoring it or not up to date on it as an adult, that in fact you're doing your kids a disservice because you're not preparing them and counseling them to be in this digital world ethically and, and effectively as adults? And I know this was mentioned previously, but kids are always going to find some way to distract them or get them off task. And so why not leverage video games. Kids are obviously invested in them. Let's leverage it to our advantage and let's use it for a way to connect with them and for them to perhaps um, interact with the content presented to them in class. Um, I think that we can we can leverage this in a responsible way um, so that there are limitations and they're clear. we can set up clear boundaries and that, of course, that's a prerogative of parents or schools or wherever that information is consumed because, um, as we know, like too much of anything is, is not good. So you're saying as a, as a principal, you mm-hmm. would not... Uh, necessarily mind or even be, be be scared of your teachers starting to to try to use video games in their classes. I would applaud it. Let's we're, we're finding out what kids are into and we're being responsive to, the, to their interest. Uh, Luann, you had an interesting experience. Bef- um, I sent out the topics for this week um, about three or four days in advance before taping it, which actually gave you time to actually ask some of your students mm-hmm. about what they thought of video games. And you got some interesting responses, but you also had some interesting reflections just about what what that question elicited from your students that maybe you, you hadn't necessarily seen before from some of them? Well, uh, I teach a composition class, and um, sometimes it's hard to get kids to write, but I'm telling you, the kids who were interested in the video games had plenty to write about. I when, mean, they, when you asked them, and you asked them to actually to email you some of their responses. Oh, my gosh, and I've got just, like, pages. <laughs> I mean, I mean, literal, literal pages. Well, can you, can you, can you, so what are some of the interesting points that they, they brought up? How do they feel about the, it? They, they'll go into the history of it because they like it so much, so they'll, they'll talk about the history of it. They're very defensive about... Um, uh, why that's good for them, the problem-solving capabilities, the, you know, um, how they see it as um, possibly helping them, you know, in their future as they grow. And, uh, but they're, I mean, it's a thing that they're very passionate about. So they, they think and they see playing video games as helping them develop problem-solving skills. Yes. Like they, they're, they, they said that to you. They're able yeah. to articulate that's why. Oh, yeah. And, th- and think critically. And I mean, yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And you know, that just goes along with like, that's what, that's what play does. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just, that's just the the current form of play. Uh, you know, back when I was in, in, you know, preschool or whatever, I mean, we were, we were digging around and stuff and we were, we were playing and figuring out how best to build some, you know, make cement or whatever, you know, we, we trial and error. I mean, like we did it in a much more physical manner. Um, I mean, that was before the tape recorder even came along. Right. So, I mean, this is just like, this is this form of play right now. And you say they get defensive. So, like, these kind of, like, stereotypical notions that video games um, are inherently um, violent or that they lead to less activity or, I mean, do they get defensive over that? Or do they just get defensive over uh, people telling them how they should feel about video games? Probably that. I just, I think, um, you know, my kids, as in most kids, are probably, you know, they know how to do school and they know how to uh, talk to an adult such that they know most adults are not going to be in favor of this, so they're quiet. But if you give them a platform and say, well, 
will you help me? I mean, could you explain this to me? Could you tell me what you think about this? Then that's where you get like, that's where I got the pages of, mm. of, of information. So when I say they're defensive, I mean, it's just like, I think it's a way of saying they're passionate. Like, I want to tell you the history of it as I know, because I cared enough to research it. I want to, I want to tell you what, why this is good for me. I want to tell you how I feel when I do it. I want to tell you how I see it going in the future. I want to tell you why this one game morphed and how this other one is taken over and, 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 and why the games are being pushed down to kids at younger ages and that kind of thing. They, they want to tell me things that I, I didn't even ask because I'm not yeah. really you know, that interested in did it. Did you ask them or did they have any ideas about how or if video games could be used in school? Well, a lot of my kids are in, in things like, like robotics and they're uh, building things, right, and engineering. And so a lot of them see working with video games as a way of helping them to solve problems about how things would work, um, what what the best strategies are to to go somewhere. So, I mean, they're very interested in that and, and then working with others about that as well, right? They, they love working with others. Hmm. Um, does that spark any ideas in any of you three at the table about how video games might be able to be used in your class or in your schools? I mean, have you even, have you, any of you three ever actually tried to use some sort of video gaming technology? Um, I guess my big hang up is, um, yeah, there's great video games out there commercially, but a lot of the educational video games in comparison are not great. Yeah. I know as a teacher, I try to use... Um, it's like a World of Warcraft type feel, mm-hmm. like English ling- like learning type of platform that was supposed to have a video game feel. It was just really clunky and hard to navigate and wasn't very intuitive. Um, but I suspect that over the years, as you know, more education companies try to implement this, it'll potentially get better. Yeah. Um, what's been most effective is when teachers try to create their own type of experiences mm-hmm. for students. Say more about that. What do you mean? Yeah. So... Um, it's more interactive. So I think of um, like Pear Deck and different things like that where students can like respond to questions or, you know, um, you can like in a more game style review more than a Right, not, not necessarily like playing video games, but right. I think the, the terminology is gamifying their Exactly, class, their that's classroom. exactly it. Right. Yeah, yeah. A, a great example that I have, and my, my best reviews that I have, I set it up like that where the first part of the review is like level one. It, it should be fairly easy. And then mm-hmm. you have to get that done, turn it in, I check it, you get on to level two mm-hmm. and you have a certain amount of time to get through it. And if you get through like all the levels, then maybe there's like a little prize at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to get everybody involved because they can all help each other. Um, and that is one one way to at least gamify the classroom. But mm-hmm. that is still done on paper, right? right. Um, I would love to have something developed software-wise, like a game. Just thinking about Civilization, the game, as I played that when it first came out, and th- this dates me, I, I think we're on Civ version 20 now. Um, and that was a great game because you made certain choices to develop your civilization. And I thought, man, for government, that would be great. You could do the same thing. You know, why, why not have it where you're starting off and, and you're starting a society and you get to choose how to set up your own government? Um, if somebody could do that, you know, I'll, I'll pay you money. You know? well, yeah, yeah. What's to stop you from actually playing the game Civilization in a social studies class? Right, because I think there's a lot of other stuff in it that isn't it, – the time spent on it is not um, necessarily, like – it wouldn't be good cost-benefit. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, you would be you'd be wasting some class stuff. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, and I'd like to throw just maybe kind of another view out there that if – 
if we gamify things too much educationally, mm-hmm. I mean, our kids are savvy enough to kind of get that, and they're sort of like, so then I think that builds up resistance too, or at least it can if it looks obvious. I mean, our kids can be like, oh, they're trying to, they're trying to get that, you know, they're trying, they're trying to trying, engage me, right? <laughs> and so I mean, you know what I mean? It becomes a chess move situation, and they're like, yeah, no, you know, so it's it's difficult, <laughs> right? Um, and I will say, I mean, researchers and and gaming advocates um, do caution against gamifying too much. I mean, really basing your your use of your classroom use of games on competitive point winning contests. There is a point where that can work, but up to a point, it might become counterproductive. Uh, many true gamers, and I'll be clear, I'm not one of these. I, I'm not a real gamer, but. Um, they will say the real value in video games is in the learning, the problem solving, um, the play that occurs that you were talking about earlier, Luann, that some of your students alluded to. So they say if games can be used in that way in class, where there is a more um, uh, focused use on having kids actually use problem solving skills on video games in class, maybe through historical simulations or uh, challenging logic problems or something like that. Um, or teaching coding. A lot, of, a lot of schools are teaching coding now. That those applications may be more beneficial. Um, do you see your schools doing that in the near future? Uses like that. Yes. We are launching our computer science program and hiring a teacher to teach coding because we seem to be moving in a direction where this is it's going to be more and more important for students to know how to lear- like learn these coding languages. Um, and kids want to learn them because it, it's such a part of their life and more than it has ever been with games and other types of inventions. And there's been some initiatives in the inner city to get more inner city kids coding um, on that level. So that, that's definitely happening, happening in the inner city. Skimming through Twitter recently, I came across a tweet from author and motivational speaker Brad Johnson. I'll read the tweet in full because the argument Johnson is making got me to thinking, and I want our teachers to respond to it as well. But here's what he said, and here's the, here's the entire tweet. Admin really need to stop using the it's about the kids to put more work on teachers and the it's about the kids is in quotes. This is a type of bullying, pure and simple. If you add something, then take away something. It's time for teachers to be treated like professionals, not manipulated because they are givers. That is Brad Johnson's tweet in its entirety. Teachers often hear that phrase, it's about the kids, or a version of it, maybe something like, it's what's best for the kids. Frequently, it's used when teachers are being asked to do something for their job, many times when a quest is being made that's above and beyond their formal duties. But again, Johnson's tweet got me thinking. When I was a teacher, I was always kind of bothered by this phrase because, yes, I thought it is all about the kids. If it wasn't, I wouldn't be here. So do our teachers hear this phrase a lot, too? And if they do, do they think it's maybe just pointless verbal boilerplate or do they see something like Johnson um, it's a little bit more malicious at work so it's about the kids or it's all about the kids do you hear this phrase or even use this phrase yourself a lot I wouldn't I don't use it, but I I sure hear it. Okay. I don't think it's about I don't know I read his tweet and to say that it's bullying I mean that's such a that's such a power word right now. I mean, and people he was on just, Twitter, so guess, right, yeah. and people really <laughs> respond to that. And so I don't know if um, if you could say like it's it's out and out bullying, but I do think it's manipulative. Ab- absolutely, um, I don't think it's any secret that education borrows much from like a business model, and a business model is going to be about like how can we have the most productive, the most pro- the most productivity, and 
at, for the, at the least cost to us. So, like, for instance, just to put it, put one example down, it's like if, if you're going to tell stu- teachers, hey, it's best for kids uh, because we don't have the money for, for uh, you to teach six classes, stay instead of five. And so um, just do that. Well, you know you're going to have teachers that are going to make it work, and they're going to do that. And so because it's best for the kids and because they can make it work, then it becomes the new normal. Yeah. Uh, and that slippery slope is a well-traveled pipeline. Yeah. Greg, uh, Kirsten, do you think it's, it's manipulative? Oh, definitely, because it, it's, it's used as uh, a cudgel to, to, just to stop any sort of criticism or opposition in its tracks. Because then all of a sudden, you're, if, if you're faced with that question, then it seems like you're not for the kids. Oh, so right? you're saying if you, are, if, you, if you are questioning a directive or an initiative, right? then they'll say, well... Well, it's for it's for the kids. Like, why? It, it's almost like, why am I not giving? You know, why, why don't you care? You know, you'd be a better teacher if you cared more. Uh, Kirsten, the administrative perspective. Yeah. So <laughs> I have used. We have to do what's best for kids, like uh, many times, and I could see how it could be used as a as a manipulative ploy. Um, what I always try to do is think about, like, yes, we'll say it because that's always a part of rationale, but also explain, like, why specifically it's best, why it's best for kids. Um, and also not overusing it so it doesn't become used in a manipulative way. So in doing that, um, knowing, like, but what sometimes you have to consider, like, what's best for teachers, too, as we do what's best for kids? Because if you are burning out your teachers because you're always saying it's best for kids, best, best for kids, that's going to be good for no one. Right. And I think it's so important for teachers. Like, I'm a huge proponent for teacher sustainability. And if you're constantly using that line and aren't being strategic with how you use it, um, then it doesn't hold weight, and it could actually have a de- detrimental effect. Can you give me an example of, you say you use it pretty frequently or have used it pretty frequently, but you say you follow it up with, like, specific... Yeah. Like, how this is specifically going to be good for Sure. Kids. Yeah, I can, and I, yeah, I can, like, be really clear in terms of, like, how I use it. Or um, So mid-year, we shifted over to using... Um, we adopted, like, the Engage New York curriculum instead of everything was teacher-created before, and that's a huge shift, especially mid-year. But I provide a clear rationale, like, hey, we did some really deep data dives and we did some classroom observations and we see some great things. Um, Here are some specific things that we're seeing. Um, But one really huge area of concern is we have a standard that, you know, you're saying, hey, the standard is being taught, but it's actually not being taught at grade level. It may be a couple grade levels down, and that's a trend across the school. And we know you work so hard to you know, vet your curriculum and whatever you put in front of kids and you make sure that um, it's on grade level, but it's still not there yet. And that's a trend we're seeing across the country. We're adopting this curriculum because there's no guesswork and it's less work on you after we kind of know how to adopt this curriculum well, because you're not having to reinvent the wheel and you can make tweaks to it. Um, And ultimately we have to do what's best for kids because we know that when we have vetted curriculum that without doing the guesswork of making sure it's on grade level, it's going to help them in the long run. So still using it, but I guess grounding it in some, I mean, some, I mean, some very real data. Yeah, data that. and clear rationale. Uh, Greg and, and Luann, convincing use of uh, the phrase, it's all about the kids? <laughs> yeah, yeah from, from an admin, yeah, that's, I think that's, that's good. I think the problem is, is when society looks at teachers in that way, that we're expected to do just what's best for the kids. And I loved your phrase also, you know, well, what's best for teachers? Uh, because that's, that's the problem. We, we shoot ourselves in the foot by, by as a, um, at, as a vocation, as looking at it like, you know, we're just doing it for the kids. Yeah, 
but we're also doing it for ourselves. Mm. We, we have to take care of ourselves at the same time. If we're always doing what's best for the kids, that's the quickest way to burn out. Uh, does, has this phrase been used so much it doesn't, I mean, maybe in some ways doesn't even mean anything anymore? I think so. And sometimes, in some cases, I think it can be kind of a little insulting because it's like if you've got a person who's been in the profession for a while and you say, well, why don't you do this because it's good for the kids? Then didn't you just insult the person who's been there yeah. working for the kids? <laughs> so, Well, before we get to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. A dozen parents, including actress Felicity Huffman, plan to plead guilty to charges stemming from a college admissions cheating scandal. We've talked about this on several of the past podcast episodes. In federal court in Boston recently, Huffman apologized for paying $15,000 to arrange for cheating on her daughter's SAT. She said she wanted to say she was sorry specifically to the students who, quote, work hard every day to get into college, end quote. Meanwhile, actress Lori Laughlin. Aunt Betty from Full House also accused as, or Aunt Becky, right? Yeah. Aunt Becky from Full House also accused as part of the cheating probe, rejected a plea deal, and she now has been indicted on charges of fraud and money laundering and faces potentially up to 40 years in prison. Yeah. Hmm. A new meta-analysis of research concludes readers are slightly more efficient and focused when they are reading from paper than on screens. This gets back to the conversation about video games and screen time. The paper published in the Journal mm -hmm. of Research and Reading reviewed nearly 30 studies conducted over the past decade. The analysis also concluded that readers on screens are generally more confident that they're processing and understanding more than they actually are. And this is tangentially related to education if you've taught in the frozen era. The website Quartz reports that Let It Go, the hit song from the movie Frozen, is the most streamed song in Disney's catalog, and it's not even close. The song, of course, originally sung in the movie by Broadway star Adina Menzel, has been streamed 280 million times. That's more than 90 million more times than the next most streamed Disney song. Can you guess what the next most streamed Disney song would be? A uh, whole new world? <laughs> oh, Greg. Ah. You're so nostalgic. No. <laughs> Man, it's more, those 90s. more recent than that. Oh, I would have gone a whole new world. I was thinking a Cinderella song. There's another big uh, yeah, Disney movie way. recently, not as big as Frozen, maybe, but still. Oh, a Hakuna Matata from. <laughs> no. Is it... no. Moana? Uh, it's from Moana. Oh. How Far I'll Go from Moana. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but really, let it go. For a while there, when I was, <laughs> this was when I was in high, a high school English teacher. Every single Oh, Kyle, just let this go. Yeah, let go. Okay, yeah. good point, good point. Well, those were some of the education headlines that caught our eye recently. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard on this episode, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Kirsten, what are your kids into? Uh, it's really disappointing, unfortunately. And I know this is happening across the country. I've read superintendents and principals alike 
put out pu- letters and talk about this publicly, but vape pens are yeah, everywhere. Yeah, worse, yeah. We can't seem to... And they're evolving. They're evolving, and they're so sneaky. And so we are doing, like, staff meetings on, like, how to detect it and what, like, it's 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 a lot. Mm-hmm. And they are they they're smoking the mat school in class. Just like different way, they're they're finding any way and like so. What, what we're doing, we um, there's local hospitals that have been really great about creating programming to respond to this, and they're going to come talk to our kids. So hopefully, if they have the rationale behind the health implications, it'll help stop a lot of this. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've talked about vaping before. We might need to re up that conversation because it is seemingly getting worse in a lot of different locations. Kirsten, good luck with that. Greg, what are your kids into? Uh, so somewhat related. And I, um, for the first time this past week, I heard the use of the word smoke to mean um, blowback or talk back or just problems of any kind. So, for instance, uh, where I heard this was we were talking about the First Amendment. So I asked my kids, um, what does the freedom of speech mean to you? And, and somebody wrote down, um, it's, it's the freedom to say what you want without smoke. <laughs> and I was like, what? What, what do you mean? What do you, you know, it's like, you know, smoke, mister, you know, like, you know, problems. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, all right. So now that's, I, I've, now that I've heard that once, now I keep hearing it in class. I just keep hearing it uh, from, from my kids. It's, it's rather interesting. So smoke is um, like a guff or, yeah. or criticism. Yeah, yeah or just or crap, you know, just, yeah. with, with, without any crap. <laughs> I had not heard that either. So no smoke. Well, I guess you're kind of blowing smoke, right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, yeah. All right, Luann, what are your kids into? Well, I have a musical offering this week. And uh, so I have kids who are into the Jonas Brothers reunion. Okay. Um, God. So they're, so they're into that. Um, many of them are into the Old Town Road yeah, yes. song with Billy Ray Cyrus. And, and how didn't that all get, didn't TikTok, that that. That the app, new, yeah, the new whatever, social that, media app, that made TikTok. that, yeah, that made that get out there, and so that whole country rap situation, and they're they're really into that, um, and, I, and memeing about I've that too, like song. yeehaw memes and Do everything you know that comes from that. Who, the original artist who's behind the Old Town Road? What's his name? It's like Nas, little uh, little Lil, Nas. Lil Nas X. Yes, okay, I'm but so now cool. but now they've done a. Yeah. Uh, you are very cool to win. I try. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But now they've done like a remix with Billy Ray Cyrus, right? In like in an attempt to get it on the country music charts, right? Right. Because so, the country music charts shut them out. And what what? No, oh, this could be its own. This right. could be its own topic, right? <laughs> I think at some point, right? The whole right, yeah. That, um, but yeah. Okay. Well. Thanks to our teachers this week. Thanks to our teachers this week, Kirsten Brown, Greg Brenner, and Luann Fox. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be, be kind, kind to your teachers. teachers. Someone say be kind. I thought it was be nice. It is be nice. Did someone oh, say be kind? I said that was me. That was me. I thought it was be kind. Can he edit it? Yes, he can edit okay. it. Okay, okay. three, okay. two, one. Be, be nice, nice to your teachers. teachers. <laughs>